Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In our last episode, number 34, I talked with Patricia Van Skyke, manager of the History and Genealogy Department of the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, about the unique genealogical resources that are tucked away in public libraries, just waiting to be discovered. And she gave us some great ideas on how to prepare for your visit to get the most out of your time at the library. In the first segment of today's episode, Pat explores the library catalog and provides tips on how to find what you are looking for. And one of the things that um, I want to point out is that we have at least three different people speaking three different languages, so to speak. We have genealogists that are thinking of it in terms of genealogy and will use phraseology that may not be always familiar to uh, the reference librarian. We also, at the other end of the spectrum, have the people that are cataloging the books, that are cataloging the books according to either national or international standards that have been put in place that say, you first use this term and the geographical term goes here, and this is the language that you use to describe a death certificate. And that language may not have the word death or certificate in it. And then we have sort of in the middle between the cataloger, because the cataloger and the reference librarian are often not one and the same person. So uh, you have the reference librarian that's sort of between the two (laughs) and speaking of, so trying to take the information from the catalog and help make it meaningful to the genealogist. Then she helps us change our thinking about public libraries. I really want to emphasize, you know, don't think of your public library as something that you just use to come and look at the books or the maps or the microfilm that might be there, um, but also that you can actually contact them to help you use resources that are not related to the public library at all. Then in our second segment... Pat takes us inside the unique collections of public libraries. Well, one collection that comes to my mind is our map collection. Our map collection is just really outstanding. And she helps us ask for what we want. You really need to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and introduce yourself to the librarian and say, Hi, I'm here, you know, from Phoenix, and I'm here to look at this. You know, let us know the re- nature of your research. And she even exposes the obstacles librarians face when it comes to cataloging large and unique collections that may interest genealogists. Yeah, my catalog department could, might tell me, say, you know, we have these Harry Potter books that have to go out. <laughs> and um, I don't have somebody that can do original cataloging for your hundred maps and put them in the catalog. So dust off your library card and grab your book bag and let's head back to the public library.
Patricia Van Skyk manages one of the largest genealogy collections in the country, housed at the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. She's also an author, a web developer, conservator, curriculum leader for distance learning classes, and trustee of the Ohio Genealogical Society. And she also lectures widely on the topics of urban immigration and census research, as well as genealogical librarianship. Patricia holds master's degrees in history and library science and is a graduate of the National Institute on Genealogical Research. In this first segment, Patricia starts us off by helping us find what we are looking for. Patricia, in our last segment, you talked about geographic location and and the searches that we do in the public library online um, catalog. And I really wanted to probe with you a little bit more about that because, again, we kind of know what we're looking for, but we really have to be thinking in terms of how libraries work, how how librarians think, how they catalog their materials. And I wanted to know if you could just recap what you were saying about how items in the library are cataloged and how you made the point that we shouldn't necessarily be just searching on the surname, but really be thinking about how records are created and then how the librarian thinks about those records when she's recording it in the catalog. Can you maybe go into that a little further? Well, uh, yes, that's a really good point. And one of the things that um, I want to point out is that we have at least three different people speaking three different languages, so to speak. Yeah. We have genealogists that are thinking of it in terms of genealogy, and we'll use phraseology that may not be always familiar to uh, the reference librarian. Uh, Acronyms for things, uh, you know, they'll say, do you have Percy? (laughs) the periodical source index for genealogical periodicals and a new genealogy librarian might sort of scratch their head Uh as to what that is and again other sort of lingo we also at the other end of the spectrum have the people that are cataloging the books that are cataloging the books according to either national or international standards that have been put in place that say you first use this term and the geographical term goes here and this is the language that you use to describe um, a death certificate and that language may not have the word death or certificate in it. Or as you mentioned before, they don't use the word genealogy too much and yet we, we're thinking, oh, we're looking for genealogy. And then we have sort of in the middle between the cataloger, because the cataloger and the reference librarian are often not one and the same person. Okay. So uh, you have the reference librarian that's sort of between the two (laughs) and speaking, so trying (laughs) to take the information from the catalog and help make it meaningful to the genealogist and help take the information from the genealogist and help them translate it into terms. Uh, that the catalog speaks. Uh-huh. So the reference librarian is sort of the intermediary there. But um, as I said, one of the things that I really would want to encourage is um, a geographical approach. Another thing that, um, and people probably do this with lots of other things, whether they're looking for a recipe or doing some sort of search on the Internet for any variety of topics, is that once you find something that is, dead on to what you're looking for, 
look at the subject headings that the catalog has assigned to that. Oh. Cases there are actually hot links. Like you're like, this is what I'm looking for. Okay, they're calling it this. So you just click on that, and that'll bring up all the other things that are also called registers of birth, comma, <laughs> marriages, et cetera, you know. So once we've stumbled into how the library talks about these items, then we want to really pay attention to that and, and continue to educate ourselves about how the library is dealing with these materials so that we can kind of drill in and get closer to the other types of things. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what you do. Just like you would drill in on a research database, you know, you would drill in on a library catalog. And while we are talking about the Internet and research databases and online catalog, I did want to also mention that one of the things that we get an increasingly number of calls about and emails is for us to actually help people navigate the web, not just resources that are unique to our collection. So people will call us and say, you know, I've been looking all morning for this, and I know it's there, but it's a needle in a haystack. And, you know, again, to use this example, I, I'm looking for somebody that, you know, died around sometime in the 1870s. And we can give them suggestions of places where they can look for that online to find that information. So I really want to emphasize, you know, don't think of your public library as something that you just use to come and look at the books or the maps or the microfilm that might be there, um, but also that you can actually contact them to help you use resources that are not related to the public library at all. Right. Librarians are also in the position, I mean, part of what we do is evaluate resources. So, you know, people will call us and say, you know, I found this, this, and this in this particular database or on this particular web website. And we can look at it and, you know, say, well, I'm not sure that the authority of that source is really very valuable. Let me point you to another source that is really known for being very reputable. Well, that's really part of your job, isn't it? It's um, You're working online all the time, probably more than we are. And that's a great point. You guys have, have tracked these things down and you've probably had to do a bit of looking into as you're you're collecting materials, you know, you're deciding which books you're going to take in. Exactly. And um, also, I do want to point out that our customers educate us very much as well. Um, you know, can't tell you how many times somebody's walked in and said, did you know, you know, this database just added this or oh. let me show you something really neat. And again, the librarians are in the u unique position that we have people every day coming in and telling us all of these things. So once again, we can sort of serve as a clearinghouse. And we subscribe to things like uh, genealogy librarian listserv. So when there's discussion about why a particular um, website isn't working right or did you know that this particular database just removed this source, for, you know, we often hear yeah. it first because we're part of that. And, you know, it's interesting, but I really think you guys, you're right, you're in such a unique position because we could contact the local genealogical society for that area. And maybe we talk to the, the president or maybe we talk to their liaison person or whatever. But sometimes it's it's the hardcore members that are just spending all of their time researching and they're in there talking to you guys in the library. You in the library become kind of the uh, transmitter of some of these gems that are coming your way that 
chances are maybe the person that we call the genealogical society isn't aware of. Right, right. Yeah. It's just a real central location where things can all sort of be brought together in one place and then disseminated. Yeah. Now, you were talking about the advanced search. I love what you said about you don't have to be advanced on computers to use the advanced search, that really it's just about honing in more carefully and clearly on what exactly you're looking for. Did you have any more tips or ideas about that? Well, just one um, tip that sort of comes to mind about an advanced search is let's say um, if you're looking just at a normal screen and there's a keyword search and maybe there's three terms that you want to appear as a keyword search, like let's say marriages, San Francisco, or let's just say two, marriages, San Francisco, or whatever. Um, A lot of times in just your regular search, it is not going to pull up um, a record if those two terms don't appear in the exact same field. So if, um, if one of those words is in the title and one of those words is in the description that the catalog works, it's going to come back and tell you no hits. But if you go to the advanced search, it allows you to say, to break those apart essentially, to say, I want you to look for marriages as a keyword search and I want you to look for San Francisco as a keyword search. And then it will look for each of those independent of whatever field they're in. Does that make sense what I'm saying? No, I think that makes sense is that it gives you the power to break it up, narrow it in, and um, maybe find something that you didn't find in that initial simple search. Right. And I think the simple search um, intuitively sets up some expectations that are different than how the simple search really works. Because uh, um, I would think that, you know, if I wanted to put something San Francisco in marriages, that I would be able, and I put keyword search, that I would be able to pull up any book that talks about San Francisco and marriages. But in fact, that's not really quite how most of them work. You, but if you went to the advanced search, you could break your terms up. And that's a really effective strategy to breaking terms up. Even if it's all the same words that you were going to use and put them in a keyword search line, go to the advanced page and just use drop-down menus and make two or three or how many different searches you need for your words and make each of those a key, their own keyword search. And would we expect that the catalog is searching titles as well as the categories as well as the summaries? Is it searching everything within it's, that card listing? It is searching everything within most everything. Okay. Yeah. Again, it's going to, going to vary from catalog to catalog, online catalog, what system you're using. But it's searching across a lot of fields. You bet. And we have a couple minutes left in this segment. I just wanted to ask you about interlibrary loan. Um, tell us a little bit more about how that works and, and maybe is that something we could tap into to try to get some material sent to us if we can't make the trip in person? Um, it is and it is not. Yeah. Um, an awful lot of libraries do not make their genealogy collection available for li- interlibrary loan because it's so locally specific and because people travel to use that library, they don't want then the book to be out on interlibrary loan. So you can always try, but I would say with genealogy, you often run into more difficulty getting a book on interlibrary loan than you would just getting a general 
book. But one thing that is an option, particularly if you have a source that you're interested in, again, like you're saying, you know, this book, these are 1870s death book again, you know. Uh-huh. I'd like to take a look at that book on interlibrary loan. Well, maybe you really only need a couple of pages that relates to your ancestor. So most libraries will take a look at the index of a book, often for free, and would send you or scan for you photocopies of the the pages of interest for you. And again, there may... There, there likely be some kind of charge involved, uh-huh. but in many cases it would be much less than the charge for an interlibrary loan, and you get what you need. So um, that I would recommend that approach as well, uh, especially if you run into not being able to get on an interlibrary loan. And also some of the things that are available at public libraries that are locally specific may be the only copy of that book that still is even around. Yeah. That's one of the things that's really interesting if you do like a world cat search and see how many other copies, how many other libraries have this particular book. And it can be a very small library, but yet they can be the unique owner of many books that have to do with local genealogy, and they would be reluctant to send that out on interlibrary loan. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of things are reference in the reference category, which, of course, right. I don't think I've ever seen a reference item, you know, something that, that could be interlibrary loan. That's always just in-house, right? Well, um, many libraries actually do uh, send reference items out on, lin- on interlibrary loan, car manuals or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, that's, that's not that unusual, but it is more unusual to send genealogical materials. In our case, we would be more likely to do it if we had a second, uh, several copies of it or something like that. So that might be a considering factor um, for a library. But in many cases, we don't even send our genealogy books if it's the only copy out to our branch libraries. Right. We want it there for our customers that have made the trip across town or maybe across the country to use it. And I think your tip is a great one, which is if you know, let's say, I'm looking for the last name Burkett, um, I don't even need the whole index. I could just ask them, would it be possible to photocopy the B section in the sure. index of a particular book and um, maybe pay the photocopying costs, and they could send that to me or, like you say, even digitize it. Um, but that way you could just very quickly determine if what you're looking for is in a particular book. Great suggestion. We'll be right back with more on public libraries right after this. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Now, in our second segment, we are going to head back to my conversation with Patricia Van Skyke, who will give us a tour of some of the unique collections that we can find at public libraries. Patricia, you've given us so many terrific ideas on how to make the most of the public library online as well as in person and how to prep for our trip, how to think like a librarian so that we can really tap into the resources and find them more quickly. Um, Any other final thoughts about the use of the public library um, or any unique collections? Maybe you have an example of a really unique 
wonderful collection that you have there in Cincinnati that people just wouldn't be aware of and wouldn't think of that would kind of inspire them to ask about these types of collections and maybe get a better understanding of really how special they are and what's out there? Well, one collection that comes to my mind is our map collection. Our map collection is just really outstanding. And we have uh, Sanborn fire insurance maps for um, most of the east coast of the country. Um, I don't know if you're familiar of those, or I should say east of the Mississippi, and then it's spotty west of the Mississippi, mostly because the Sanborn maps themselves, the company didn't cover that as thoroughly or as comprehensively. Well, tell the listeners what those are, because I think you're right. Some people haven't used them yet. They're maps that um, were devised by an insurance company to uh, basically know if property had been destroyed or whatever, what had been there previously. So Uh somebody said, hey, I lost my, you know, 12-bedroom mansion, they could look at their insurance map and said, no, you had a, you know, two-bedroom frame <laughs> row house. Um, but they actually have the, the outline or the footprint of the property drawn to scale. They indicate what the construction material were, was there. They have the street address. They indicate how property has been used. So, They'll show a movie theater, a grocery store, or, you know, in Cincinnati, the brewing industry was very big, so a lot of the Germans that lived here might have worked at um, a brewer that was, you know, down the street from where they lived or whatever. So people really like it because it's just that extra piece that gives so much more color and detail to your ancestors' lives, and they are beautiful. They're in color as well. and then we have things like plat maps and land ownership maps. Um, so there are lots of different ways that you can get some information about the property. Uh, like recently I was using um, the agricultural census schedules. It was very helpful for me to look first the land ownership maps to get a sense of where the property was because that helped me to go to the right place in the agricultural census. So, um, but I think that um, our library is not unusual in the fact that most libraries have something that is unique to their local area. And that would be, as a user, customer, one of the questions that I would want to make sure and ask when I arrived at the library, either when I contacted them in advance or when I got there. And that is, what resources and collections do you have that, you know, are unique that I can't find other places or that you perhaps have created or put together in-house? A lot of surname files and special indexes and that sort of thing been created maybe a 100 years ago, and you're not going to find that anywhere else. That's a great Um, point. I I used to live in a um, Victorian house, and I remember uh going to the public library um, downtown and asking them, I gave them the address. They didn't have anything about the house, but I was just trying to do some research because we were going to do some renovation. And um, I said, well, do you, do you have anything else? Is there anything that's unique here? And they said, well, you know, we have this file folder of unidentified photographs um, that were taken around the city that 
we have yet to identify because we'd already been through the ones that had been sure. identified. And I opened that file and there was the photograph of that house with a little wicker chair in the front yard. <laughs> and it was probably taken around 1910. And I knew it immediately. And they were as excited as I was because now that was one more photograph that was going to be identified. So I felt like we were really partnering together. And sure. I don't think that that ever would have come to light if, if I hadn't asked. So I think that's right. a great point. And that is also, you know, I mean, if you really need to ask, yeah. you know, and and introduce yourself to the librarian and say, hi, I'm here, you know, from Phoenix, and I'm here to look at this. You know, let us know the re- nature of your research. We may have, you know, somebody sitting across the room that is yeah. an expert on the topic that you're researching and saying, well, you know, Mrs. So and So has been researching uh-huh. that topic for twenty years. Um, That's a great she... point. Well, and so, too, because um, you might you might contact them later um, when you get home and you have a follow up question. And if you've taken a few moments to, to be cordial and to introduce yourself, they're going to remember you. They're probably you know it's everything is personal relationships. They're going to be happy to help you, right? That that is true, and in our library, of course, we don't put the whole onus on you. Our librarians are also expected to go out and greet the people and, Uh you know, sort of probe, but, you know, sometimes that's sort of delicate because you don't know, like, how far to push and all of that, so it's always really helpful if the person that's doing the research volunteers because then they're free to identify, you know, as much or as little as they're comfortable with and thus not feel like we're sort of like probing too much or pushing too much into their business. Yeah. <laughs> but usually we're we're happy to have those kinds of questions. Genealogists, I'm sorry, are usually very forthcoming. <laughs> and you could probably spot somebody who's hitting a brick wall and shaking their head <laughs> and you right. know, oh, they could use some help. And also let us know if you can't find something. It's, you know, either it's not on the shelf because – Librarians are also sort of notorious for having what are known as pull-out collections. Um, and, I mean, this is true even just in a branch library that has a large fiction collection or something. They may have the certain kinds of mysteries pulled out in this corner right here. So maybe all of the things for a particular geographic area are in one place except for the military records or except for the city directories or whatever. So it's... You've got your number or you expect that it should be at a particular place and it's not. Also, a lot of libraries have closed stacks, which people uh, may not be aware of. And, you know, if you don't ask, like, this wasn't on the shelf, usually the library can look and say, oh, it's on the floor below. Let me go get that for you. Well, now, tell us what you mean by a closed stack. I think I've heard that term, but I don't think I've ever heard it really explained. It is... Um, it's not a pub, it's not a public area that you can browse through. Okay. So a lot of main libraries and older libraries, they'll have what's the reading room, if you will, or the public area where they put out things that get the highest demand and also sometimes some of the more valuable books are not going to be there. So things that, you know, maybe there's only one copy of that they sort of want to keep an eye on what's happening with that. Um, but generally, it's just more of a storage issue. Um, this particular book doesn't get as many requests as that book. So that book is going to be out in the open floor. But if you want to see the other one, you have to request it. And then there is some sort of um, 
storage area. And now some places like the National Archives or the Library of Congress, the storage area might be actually physically off site and you would have to wait a day or two to get it. Right. Um, but um, in many libraries, the storage area could be back in the office where somebody walks back in the office and gets it. Or in the case of our library, we have a couple levels of stacks that are uh, just floors of nothing but shelves and books um, that the public doesn't have access to, but we do and our shelvers do. So we would go and retrieve that for you and get it for you in a couple of minutes. And that was one of the final questions I had. I was thinking about maps and old maps or things that are delicate. And they, I assume all of those items are going to be listed in the catalog. So even if they're on a closed stack, they're still listed? Um, no, unfortunately not. That's going to vary um, repository to repository. Um, one of the things also with regard to a map, because that's a perfect example, is that um, maps require very special cataloging to describe, and especially if there are not lots of copies of this. Like if we were to buy, you know, I don't know, some copy of a book that's on the bestseller list, that would be a very easy job to catalog that because our catalogers would basically be able to go to um, a national cataloging uh, organization that we're a part of, and they would be able to just basically type in that title and all the cataloging information would be right there and basically just export that down to their record. And it's almost instantaneous. But if I take a map to my catalog department and say, here, I want you to catalog this and put this in the, put this in our online catalog, um, that could be a day long job. You know, my catalog department could, might tell me, I don't have the re- – and then I say, and guess what? I've got a 100 of these. <laughs> so, you know, we have these Harry Potter books that have to go out. <laughs> and um, I don't have somebody that can, you know, put your 100 map do original cataloging for your 100 maps and put them in the catalog. Um, you know, they might come up with a compromise and say something like, we could put a catalog record in that says, there is a map collection. See the see the librarian for so details. That, that would be a situation where you definitely want to ask, is there anything else? Because there may very well be, it may not even be in the catalog. And but I'm assuming that that with the help of the librarian, that they could make that available to you if they knew that it was there. And and even if it were something delicate or, or antique, that they could help you look at it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in our case with the maps, you know, you tell us you want this map that's easy for us to find. We've got them in map cabinets arranged by years, and we can produce that for you. But every single one of those maps is not going to necessarily be cataloged. Um, Now, with delicate and rare items, there may be some restrictions that are applied. You know, you might have to view it in a particular, you know, viewing area, you may not be able to photocopy it, depending on how old and fragile it is, you might you know, be asked to use some white gloves or something like sure. that. But um, you still would be able to view it. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention also when we were talking about interlibrary loan, and this also has to do with viewing fragile items, one thing a lot of people may not be aware of is that when libraries are digitizing things in their collection, 
some libraries use as a way of assigning priority a request by a customer for that particular resource. So let's say, for example, you wanted a book and the book is, you know, from the 1800s, so it's not under copyright protection or anything like that. You could contact the librarian when you say, could I borrow this book? No. Can I get it from interlibrary loan? And they say no. Always ask the question, is there any chance you could digitize that and put it on your website? And that may seem like that's really asking a lot for for a library to do. But honestly, in our library, we are digitizing books and putting them on our website. And when we're assigning priority, if somebody has asked for that particular book, now, the likelihood they're going to say, yes, and we'll do that next week for you. Right. <laughs> is pretty. But so, you know, again, that's something that I think people wouldn't think of to ask um, and might think that they're asking a lot. But do ask that question because sometimes they could say yes and say, and now that you've asked, it goes to number four on the list of what we're going to do. Well, I I think of it in terms of like doing this podcast, when people take the time to email me, and they say, could you cover this particular topic? That rises in the level of of how I'm prioritizing the topics I'm going to work on. So it, it really is part of that partnership you were talking about, you let them know, and they probably appreciate knowing what's important to their customers. Are you looking for a way to get even more genealogy gems that will power boost your research, inspire your creativity, and give you the motivation that you need to tackle that brick wall? Well, become a Genealogy Gems Premium member. You'll get two extra members-only episodes every month, packed with great information that you can use right away, an instructional video series walking you through the best internet tools step-by-step. Our current series is called Google, a goldmine of genealogy gems. And in each episode, you can follow along with me as I show you online how to get the most out of Google. If you enjoy the Genealogy Gems podcast, then you're going to love being a premium member. But don't just take my word for it. Here's what your fellow podcast listeners have to say. This is Melissa Barker in Tennessee. I'm just calling to let you know how much I'm enjoying your Genealogy Podcast Premium Edition. I especially love the handwriting analysis with Paula Sassy. And all the tips and information that you give is just so wonderful. I would encourage anyone to become a member of your Genealogy Gems Podcast Premium. To become a premium member and start reaping the benefits right away, go to genealogygems.tv and click the Join Today button. Genealogy Gems Premium Membership. It's where you belong. been talking with Patricia Van Skyke, uh, the manager of the History and Genealogy Department at the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. It has been a, a fantastic series. I have really learned a lot, and I thought I had spent a lot of time in public libraries, but you've really helped me kind of think more like a librarian, and that's going to help me get more out of my my public library and the libraries that I go and visit. So, Patricia, I want to thank you so much for that, and just want to find out if there's any closing thoughts, tips, anything that we you definitely want to pass on to our listeners. 
Well, I think some of these have been covered in various areas, but I just want to would really like to close by saying, and I think genealogists already already know this, that don't make assumptions. And some of the assumptions in particular not to make is to don't assume that a small library doesn't have much in the way of advanced technology to begin with. Many of the small libraries are actually sort of forerunners in that. Um, don't assume that the resources in a library will only cover the immediate area. Sometimes libraries, particularly with relation to the ethnicity of the group that migrated to their area, might have things that are very far from their immediate area but still relate very relevantly to their local area. And we talked about the closed stacks and um, don't assume that because you can't see it, it's not there. And then just finally to the expect the unexpected. But as genealogists, we already know that. <laughs> Those are great points. Uh, again, I hadn't thought about that, but if you know, let's say that a, a lot of Germans move to a particular location, that library will not only have the local history about those people, but chances are there have been, as you were mentioning before, requests, requests for information. And if they have a, a common theme like that, chances are you may find some great information about places thousands of miles away that those uh, immigrants came from, right? Absolutely. Well, all terrific ideas. Um, I, I really want to thank you because I think that it's easy to underestimate the the local public library. And uh, even in your final points, you were talking about that don't assume that a small library isn't technologically savvy. And I'm guessing that's because as libraries, you support each other, you're part of national organizations, I'm assuming that, that, that you're able to help each other. So we don't have to assume that just because somebody's in a very small town, that that library doesn't have the kinds of resources that, that um, larger towns might have. Is that accurate to say? That's part of it. Another piece of it is it's sometimes easier to take on something that's small than something that's huge. And I think a perfect example of this is we saw small libraries getting online catalogs way in advance of Indiana University and the University of Michigan and all of that because oh. they had millions and millions of items that they had to take care of. You know, we talked about the map example and how, you know, that would be a burden for me to say to our catalogers, we'd like these hundred maps cataloged, digitized, this, that, and the other. But if we had a collection that only had three or four very relevant maps, the likelihood of those maps getting up there and online and uh, really is sort of advanced stuff done with them is greater than if you have this huge, vast collection. Great point. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us here on these um, special episodes all about public libraries. You've been a terrific resource. And um, I, I still I want to get out to the Cincinnati Library. It sounds like you have some real genealogical gems out there. We do. We'd love to see you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about, at my website, genealogygems.com. 
And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.